Welcome to the Brew Crew Review Podcast, the show by fans for fans of your Milwaukee Brewers. Welcome back to the Brew Crew Review. We are joined here on the sketch on the uh, set by Jason DeRocher, uh, former Milwaukee Brewers pitcher. Jason, how are you doing tonight? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks for joining us. So we're gonna we're gonna start off and get right into it. Um, you were drafted by the Expos in the ninth round of the '93 draft out of Horizon High School in Scottsdale. Uh, did you know that you would be drafted? And, and tell us a little bit more about how you found out that you were drafted and, and your experience on draft day. Sure. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of assumed that I would be drafted. I'd had um, a lot of scouts come into the house, uh, interview me, and I always saw you know them walking up with their briefcases. Uh, back in the days, you know, I'm an older guy, so when they would come and watch, they they look like CSI agents with their briefcases and their like they were uh, changing, uh, you know, taking spy stuff from one place to the other. But yeah, I, so I saw these guys at all my games, um, had regular contact with them, so I was not surprised uh, when I was drafted. But uh, you know, like most 18 year old kids, I was, you know, I had a vague idea of when the draft was. Um, but the first day of the draft, I was actually out playing beach volleyball with all my buddies when I got drafted. So I came home and uh, got it on an answering machine. So that's how I kind of found out. And I was like, oh, draft was today. Okay. Um, so that's kind of how that went. <laughs> that, that, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't know how many guys can say they were out playing beach volleyball when they got drafted. Yeah, no, it was, you know, just the, I guess being naive about, you know, how it all was going to work and, um, you know, I, it, there wasn't a whole lot of buildup for me on my end. You know, I, I just kind of assumed that it was going to happen and I would sign. And my parents are both very educated. They're, my mother's a huge entrepreneur and it's always owned her own businesses, owns her own thriving company now. And my dad's kind of the same way. So school was, uh, you know, I'm an only child. I'm their only son. Um, and they really wanted me to go to college. And, you know, I had a hard enough time getting myself to high school. So, um, I didn't think that I was going to, you know, the college life was going to be for me. So I figured I was going to, I was going to sign. And we had many, 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 a drag out long, uh, discussions. And, you know, at the end of the day, my, both my, well, my father specifically, they were, they weren't pleased, but they wanted, you know, they didn't want to stand in my way of, uh, you know, following my dreams. So they, they yielded and I, uh, was able to sign, but it was, uh, I remember the, the scout that drafted me was a like a gray-haired gentleman named Phil Fabia. It looked like Leslie Nielsen from Naked Gun. It was just really silver, <laughs> silver hair. And uh, I just was overwhelmed by how and it was just – that's all I could look at. I couldn't even focus on a word he was saying. Um, but he came to my house no less than four or five times to try to sign me, and my parents ran this poor gentleman through the ringer. I felt bad for him every time he left my house. Um, and then finally, I think the fourth or fifth time he came, he said, this is it. This is all the money I have. Uh, there's not going to be another negotiation. And, you know, this is it. It's take it or leave it time. And I just remember staring at my dad, uh, you know, because he had the pen waiting for him. Like, please just hand me the pen. And then he finally did. And that was that. Wow. I got to ask, um, how, how difficult was it? Like, did you have, um, I guess, some kind of set number in mind or anything like that where you thought, uh, well, if I don't get this much, uh, or if I don't get drafted at this spot, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to college, or, or something like that. Or, oh, uh, my my parents definitely did. I didn't. You know, a dollar would have sufficed for me. Like I, I was ready to sign at their first offer. Like he came, I and mean, it's like the money that I signed for 
you know, you can't sign, I'm a scout now. You can't sign players for what I signed for anymore. Um, I signed for, I think I signed for $40,000 uh, as a high school kid in the ninth round, which I think those kids now get, you know, we give them any, they'll get at least 200,000 now for that same comparable pick or thereabouts. But yeah. So my parents said 50 grand was the number. If they didn't come up with 50,000, then they weren't going to allow me to sign. And I think the first offer was like 20 or 25, something like that. Then he came back at 30, then 33, then 35. And then finally four, it was a long, it took me, I didn't, I think the draft was in early June and I didn't sign until well into July, I believe. Um, but like I said, I would have signed the day one. It didn't really matter to me. It wasn't life-changing money one way or the other. Um, you know, they paid for my college um, on top of it. So it was, you know, you had the fallback plan even then. If, uh, you know, I didn't succeed, I was going to be able to go to college. Um, and that was kind of what I sold my parents on. But, you know, it was hard when I finally got done playing. I was 33 years old and I didn't fancy myself as a freshman at ASU at 33. I just didn't think that would look uh, – the optics of that would just look bizarre. I felt like a pet, I felt like a pedophile sitting in the classroom, you know, 18 year old kids and gristled old man in English 101. Just, that was just probably wasn't going to happen. Jason, for what it's worth, uh, Craig here on the set, he has gone on spring break until he was about 38 or so. So, I mean, you're, you're totally alone. Hey, better late than never, man. That's what I would tell you. <laughs> until he had kids. I mean, he was there every year. It was pretty awesome. There, you go. Made a lot of friends. Well, there were a lot of friends I made with extras and females from ASU, too, so they were fine. <laughs> no, but um, in all seriousness, though, did you have a commitment to go uh, to, like, a college baseball program had you not been drafted or accepted, yeah. I guess? Yeah, okay. I got uh, – I went – I signed at Grand Canyon, um, and I had offers from a lot of different schools, uh, LSU, um, a lot of mid-majory type – I could have gone – you know, I took all five of my recruiting trips. I could have, I could have gone, you know, pretty much anywhere I wanted. I, I just didn't show a lot of interest to the recruiters. I think it was fairly obvious every visit I took that I was there to just miss the Friday of school. Um, and I didn't really have any sincere interest in joining any of those universities. It was just a little paid vacation to go and get out of school for a day. And I think a lot of the colleges sensed that or picked up on that through the questions that they'd asked me. Um, and so, you know, as the draft got closer and closer, um, you know, it was more and more apparent that I was probably going to end up going that route. Um, but I ended up signing my best friend. Uh, he was he signed at Grand Canyon, and so I thought there's worse fallback plans than going and playing with your best buddy for four years or three years or whatever the case would have been. So I thought, you know, I was in a pretty good spot either way. If I signed, awesome. If I didn't, I could go play with my friend. Um, and at that time, um, Grand Canyon played the toughest schedule of any team in the nation. Like they literally played a who's who and did it on the road. So you were guaranteed to play uh, against the very best competition in those venues. So I knew that I would have a chance to be scouted um, pretty extensively by choosing that university. So there was a little um, that kind of played into the choice as well. Absolutely. Um, so obviously choosing to sign on and follow your dream right out, right out of high school and uh, signing with the Montreal Expos. Um, I'm going to talk about your, your, your playing career. You actually played uh, between 1993 and 2002. You played for uh, nine seasons in the minor leagues before you finally made your major league debut. Um, I guess this is an open-ended question so you can tell some stories if you'd like. Uh, can you tell us about some of your ups and downs uh, during your minor league journey? 
during all those seasons. Sure. There was a ton of them. Um, you know, I'll start like, you know, I, I made such a stink about signing that uh, I remember I, I signed and I got to Pro Bowl and uh, I went up to, uh, it was my first day, I had my bag and walk into the locker room and I went up to this guy who I thought was a black dude. And I was like, hey, what's up, man? Jason DeRocher, good to meet you. And he started speaking Spanish to me. And I was floored. Like, I had never <laughs> come into contact with a Puerto Rican dude or a Dominican or, you know, I'd only been around whites, blacks, you know, Mexicans, but they spoke English at my school. So I was, like, right away, there was a culture shock for me coming from, you know, Scottsdale, Arizona, being thrust into a clubhouse with people from all kinds of backgrounds and demographics. Um, so I was a little, I, I was a little uncomfortable, uh, right off the bat, just, you know, I'd never really been away from home before. Um, you know, there's just a lot to adjust to as an 18 year old kid. Um, and I remember I was there about a week to 10 days and I was miserable. I mean, I just, I, I was not enjoying myself. It wasn't at all, um, like I had played it up in my mind and I called home and I was like, dad, I, I made the wrong choice, man. I, uh, this ain't for me. I'm, I'm coming home. And he goes, Oh, great. He's like, you can come home, but you can't live here. He's like, you made your bed. You're going to lay in it one way or the other. So if you come home, great. Find yourself a job. Find yourself a place to live. Uh, otherwise, I suggest you, you know, figure it out and, you know, put your best foot forward. And so I remember I hung up the phone and thought to myself, well, that's not how I envisioned that working out. Um, now what? <laughs> and, um, you know, about two, uh, after about two more weeks, uh, when the season ended, I didn't want to come home. Like, I found my footing. I made some friends. Um, you know, I started getting to pitching games, you know, cause I had missed so much time. It was just both. It took me a long time to get ramped back up to start competing. So I wasn't playing in any of the games. I was just sitting there watching. And, um, once I actually got to get out there and start to pitch and start competing again, my, you know, the competitive juices took over and, you know, like I said, the rest was history. And, uh, I was with the Expos for seven very long years. Um, you know, looking back on it, it was, you know, for me, what it was the worst organization to get drafted by just because they did such a good job at every level. There was so much talent. Like uh, my double A team in Harrisburg, I think it's a 23 man roster. 22 of the 23 played in the big leagues. And we had a guy, wow. Jamie Carroll, who has 10 years in the big leagues. He was regularly on our Phantom DL. He couldn't even find the field. This guy played in the big leagues for 10 years. Like it was Every level was like that. It was loaded, top to bottom. And so to, to get moving through that system, you had to be some kind of good. And I was not some kind of good. I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't as good. Or I wasn't good enough, uh, you know, with that group to, to, to get there. And so, you know, and we would play against other organizations. And I would, you know, just the, the fall off in talent, at least it was visible, even to a kid. You know, I was like, oh, my God, these guys aren't very good at all. Wish I would have got drafted by the whoever you know? And so, you know, I found, I found my way to AAA finally at the end. Um, you know, I was a starter for the first, I think five years of my career and I had some success. Um, you know, I was a decent starter, but I wasn't, uh, I didn't have a third pitch. I was kind of a two pitch guy. Um, then they transitioned me into the bullpen and, uh, my velocity started to really pick up in that role in the shortened role, you know, an inning, two innings, something like that. Um, below started to pick up, you know, but I was about 23. Um, that's when I, my metabolism first shifted and I first started to get fat. Um, and then I had another flux of velocity. I gained a bunch more, I guess I would call bad weight. Um, you know, I was the heavy guy, uh, and I actually led to more velo as well. So, um, velocity started ticking up as a, as a reliever and 
I found that role um, suited my personality. You know, it was, uh, you know, go as hard as you can, as fast as you can for as long as you can, but you know, it's only going to be an inning or two. Um, I really liked that. And uh, that transition helped. Um, you know, I didn't have much of a secondary pitch. I had a slider. It was not good. Um, I had a good, you know, decent enough fastball as a starter, but no third pitch. And I remember I was in double A and uh, it's probably my second or third tour in Harrisburg. And we had a new pitching coach come over from, I think he came over from the Padres. His name is Brent Strom. He's the current pitching coach for the Astros. He's the best pitching coach I ever had. He was honest with you. He was direct. Um, he came up to me and he said, you know what, son, you've got a great arm. You'll never see a day in the big leagues. You don't have a secondary pitch. He's like, you're 23 years old. How about I teach you a split finger? It's bad for your elbow. You're likely going to blow out at some point, but I just don't see another way for you to get there. And I was like, uh, sign me up. That's what you think it takes. So he went out. I uh, came back to the clubhouse the next day, and there was a big softball sitting in my locker. And he's like, everywhere you go from for the next two weeks, you jam that softball in between your first two fingers. We're going to stretch your fingers out as wide as we can get them. So me and that, I think it was a, like a chartreuse glow-in-the-dark-looking softball too, so I wouldn't lose it. Um, very visible, very easy to see. And everywhere I went, I used that softball, spread my fingers out. And I think I remember when I was the first time I threw it in a bullpen, it was, it was filthy. Like it was like the best pitch that I'd had, uh, right? Like from the first time I threw it. And so that pitch adding to my repertoire really made all the difference. Uh, I started closing, uh, at that point, um, then just became like a six year free agent and kind of just waiting around for a dude in a suit to say, Hey, let's give this guy a try. Um, when I got called up for the Brewers, um, I wasn't doing anything any differently that I hadn't been doing the last four years. I was the exact same pitcher with the exact same stuff. Like I said, I just needed a dude in a suit to point at me and say, Hey, give this guy a shot. Um, so, and so, I, I, so I, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish. Go ahead. So I was just going to say you, so getting to that point. So on June 11th, 2002, you made your debut, your big league debut, and it was for the Brewers. And, Tell us a little bit more about how you received the news and how you got the call to the bigs and, and who was the first person that you told. It had to have been a huge moment for you. It was, it, no, it was. And uh, I would have never been or gotten that opportunity had it not been for Curtis Laskanik. Um He was with the Brewers and he was uh, hurt and he had to come down on a rehab assignment. So he joined us in AAA uh, for two weeks. And he got to see me throw, I think, three or four times during that period. I think it was after the third or fourth time we're sitting down in the bullpen. It was just him and I, and he looks at me and he goes, what in the hell are you doing here? He's like, you have no business pitching here. You should be up with us. Like, this is ridiculous. He's like, how many, how many years in the big leagues do you have? And I was like, I've never been. And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. He's like, wow. He's like, well, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. I'm sure somebody will notice. And I go, well, that's what I've been thinking for the last nine years, but yeah, just keep on keeping on. So, he ended up getting recalled or back to Milwaukee, had a setback or something. And he mentioned, uh, you know, to the GM, to the trainers, to the uh, to Jerry Royster, who was the manager at the time. He's like, dude, there's this guy in AAA that, you know, something should happen. Like, I'm telling you, his this guy belongs up here with us. And then I think he was gone about 10 days and somebody got hurt. And I remember we had a day game in Indianapolis. And he called me on my way to the park. And he's like, hey. I'll see you tonight. And I was like, Oh man, awesome. You're coming back. Good. That's, that's exciting. We, you know, you were you enjoyed having you around. He goes, no, no, no. You're flying to Oakland, man. You're getting called up today. And I was like, so that's how I found out. And I'm so glad he told me because 
that day was a day game. I was the closer. I was rested, and it was a two-to-one game in the ninth, and he got somebody else up to, to come in to get the save. Had I not known that I was going to the big leagues, I'd have tipped his desk over after the game. I'd have ran <laughs> right in there. <laughs> so it actually saved me a really uncomfortable um, interaction with my coaching staff. Um, but, yeah, then they just called me in, and, you know, they kind of messed with me, but it kind of took some of the steam out because, I, I, like I said, I already knew. Um, but then, like, you know, it was so hard to sit through all day, all that game, and the game's over, and I'm waiting, and I'm just sitting in my locker in my uniform like, all right, come get me. Nothing's happening. So then I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'll go shower. I go shower. I come out. Still nothing's happening. And then, I like, I doubt started to creep in, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this isn't going to happen. And then as uh, I went in there, I was eating. The manager called me in, and he said, uh, yeah, you're, you're going to go to uh, Oakland. I said, great. I was uh, obviously very excited, but I was, it was weird because I was, also, I was also pissed. You know, it took me that long. I was, uh, you know, frustrated, uh, you know, with how long it took. And, you know, obviously I was grateful to get the opportunity, but I remember that first year pitching, I pitched with a chip on my shoulder. Every time I took the ball, I was angry. Uh, you know, I heard uh, – I listened to David Pember's um, podcast with you guys you know, just to get a taste of – what to expect. And I remember him talking about being nervous and, you know, having nerves and all that stuff. And I remember like laughing to myself, I had zero nerves. I was pissed. I was so mad. <laughs> that is awesome. You know, I, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was anything but nervous. I was just so agitated and so angry that, uh, you know, and I kind of, I kind of tried to use that as, you know, motivation and to, you know, yeah. prove that I belonged and that I could, you know, do the job. And um, yeah, it ended up working out okay for me. That is awesome. You ever have to no, do anything no, like, when you actually <laughs> where you weren't angry enough, like, and you just did, like, you had to like get yourself amped up or anything like that, or? No, it was it was totally organic. I was just pissed that it's like <laughs> I, I don't know how to explain it. Like, you know, I didn't conjure up any anger. I just was like, I was. I remember warming up. Like, um, I, I remember I came in with the bases loaded. I remember it very well, and you know. Usually they try to give you on your debut. Ideally, they would like to give you a clean inning, nobody on, you know, game out of hand. Um, I think we we're the game was pretty well out of hand. I think we we're down six to nothing or somewhere in that range, in like the third or fourth inning. But you know, coming in with bases loaded, and I remember thinking, I'm going to shove it right up there. You know what? Like they're not going to score. I'm not going to let in any of these runs. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to from day one. I'm going to just, I'm just going to shove. I'm just going to dominate. And that was kind of the mindset I had. Uh, I didn't know how realistic that would be. Um, but you know, that's kind of how I went at it. And I just thought every time I stepped on that mound and he called down to the bullpen to get me up to get in, I remember thinking it took you this long to get here. Don't you dare do anything to let them send you back, you know, treat, you treat this like it's going to be your last time. So that's kind of how I approached it. And that's kind of how I, how, how kind of how my process was. Now, what was the reaction of your family and friends when you finally uh, made it to the big leagues? Were they there to support you? or? To, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, man, I had a caravan of people celebrate. living in Phoenix. Yeah, to get to Oakland wasn't too bad. I had um, lots of family and friends that came. And my dad's a real nervous person. Uh, you know, he's not, you know, when you look at him. But he, he gets real, uh, you know, I didn't know any of this until well after the fact. But he can't, can't even watch the games, like, live. He paces. He has to get up. He has to wander. And so for him, it was really, really stressful. You know, he, he had, a, he had the experience that Dave had, you know, he was nervous and had all that stuff. I didn't have that experience. Um, so he gets, uh, I remember this is a little off the subject, but 
while I'm thinking about it, you know, obviously I live in Arizona and we came to Arizona at the end of September and my parents had season tickets right behind home plate. Um, I could see them. I could see where their seats were. They were, you know, visible to the mound. So I remember I came in, I think it was the first night and I came in and pitched and I looked and I saw my mom was sitting there and my dad was nowhere to be seen. And, uh, you know, I pitched a one, two, three clean inning and, um, you know, I check in with my mom and I said, Hey, uh, dad missed me. I saw he wasn't in his seats. He's like, Oh, he had an anxiety attack. He was up in the concourse, just wandering, looking for a paper bag. He's like, Oh God. Um, and he didn't even, uh, he didn't even come to the other two games of the series. They ended up pitching, I think at least one more time and he couldn't even come. So I felt bad, uh, for that, that, you know, you would be so nervous (laughs) for your child that you can't even get physically sick. Oh, Um, that's awesome. But yeah, we had tons of friends and family. My um, my wife, who was at that time my fiance, she was there. My friends from high school. Um, it was uh, I was very well supported. It felt really, really good. Um, it was a, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's something I'll never forget. Um, and I'm grateful to have had the experience and had the opportunity. You know, tons of guys that you know I saw that I played with and against that were equally talented, and then they were just like me. They just never got an opportunity for whatever the reason. Um, you know, this is not an exact science, what we're doing, you know, and it's, you know, sometimes it's difficult to choose and there's all kinds of factors that go into those choices. And, um, I'm pretty sure if I don't have Curtis Laskanik come down and watch me pitch and have a voice for me that I'd never get the opportunity, you know, I'm likely still pitching in AAA somewhere as a 50 year old. Uh, speaking of uh, Curtis Laskanik, um, I guess, uh, were there any other, I guess, besides him, any other players or coaches or, or any other members of the organization that uh, made a really big impression or impact on you uh, while you're with the Brewers? Um, yeah, I still am uh, texting in talk, uh, a little bit of contact with Glennon Rush. Um, he was a super awesome guy. Um, ben Sheets was a great person and a good guy to young players Jeff Jenkins was um, you know part of the you know being on a team that loses 102 games there's not a lot of egos in there there's not a lot of you know we weren't a good team it was I mean we were we were bad it's, it is what it is and we, we, we um, didn't want to bring that up Jason no, it was, no it, look it, it is that's the reality man it was it was not a good team we did not you know we had good players but we just for whatever reason man, we just struggled to you know, struggled to string together victories for, you know, any number of reasons. You know, I can tell you this, at the major league level, everybody's really, really good. And, uh, you know, there's a reason that those guys are there and those guys that have had longevity and have been there for, you know, and have established themselves. There's a reason for that. And, you know, it's, you know, you watch it on TV and it looks easy and it, you know, I'm just telling you, it's, it's a really difficult game to play and it is, just cloak and failure on both sides, hitting and pitching. It's, um, you know, it's a, and the game hasn't really changed from when they invented it, which is amazing to me. Uh, you know, how we watch the games and how we scout and how we do all that other stuff has changed, you know, dramatically. But that, the game itself, relatively unchanged, which is pretty neat. I'm not sure how I got on that topic uh, now that I'm <laughs> That was not the question, but uh, either way. It works perfectly because our our next podcast we're going to talk about all the rule changes that uh, that they're proposing that they're going to do in 2019 and 2020. So we're kind of not super thrilled with some of them, but yeah, we'll we'll talk all about that in our next episode. Gotcha. <laughs> and then um, 
my next question was, uh, and, and kind of just to give us, give you a little history of us as a book review, uh, myself, Vince, Scott, and uh, another one of our members is not here tonight, but Chad, we all actually used to work uh, at Miller Park in the ticket office of the Milwaukee Brewers. Um, uh, and back in that time that you actually made your major league debut in two, uh, 2002 and 2003. So uh, we've been friends for quite a long time. And um, we, we had a television show uh, with the same name for quite a few years. And we actually used to focus a lot on the minor leagues with the Milwaukee Brewers back in that time when, uh, you know, Ryan Braun and Prince Fielder were drafted and coming up and J.J. Hardy. So we've so ourselves and our followers, our listeners, or whatever, are all kind of fascinated with the whole aspect of getting drafted, making all the way to the big leagues, and that whole process of, uh, of minor league baseball. And obviously you've experienced both a number of years as a minor leaguer and a couple of years as a major leaguer. Um, I guess, can you – there's obviously some major differences in not only pay, but um, travel and everything when it comes to the differences between a competition, obviously, as you just mentioned, but between uh, the, playing in the minor leagues and playing in the major leagues. Um, I guess for our listeners, if you don't mind kind of describing in detail, what's like the typical day of a minor league baseball player who's down there aspiring to be a future big leaguer like, you're, like you were for a number of years? Uh, yeah, again, that's going to vary from guy to guy. For me, a typical day was, you know, I was a late riser. So if I got up before noon, I would call that the crack of dawn. So, um, <laughs> but you know, with that, you know, we stayed up so late. Like think about it. The games get over 10, 10 30. You go in there, you eat. By the time you get home, it's 11 30, 12. Well, you know, most people don't come home from work and then just go straight to bed, especially if you pitched or you, participated you still have those endorphins going you got to come down a little bit so you know the life of a baseball player both major and minor league you're you're you almost become nocturnal to a certain degree you know I was primarily awake when the sun was not up Um, so you know get up go have lunch you know go to the ballpark Uh, I wasn't one of those guys that got there particularly early the stretch was at 345 I was going to be there at 3.30, you know, give myself 15 minutes to get dressed and get out there. Um, there's guys that get there at 10 o'clock in the morning for a 3.30. Like they just like being at the ballpark, at the clubhouse. I wasn't one of those guys. Um, you know, I was amongst the last ones there and amongst the first to get out. Um, and I'm not sure if that played into why it took me nine years or not. You know, that, that's certainly a possibility. Um, but, you know, there's, you know, in a minor league town, it's, uh, you know, the biggest difference is, is the amenities and the stuff you have. Like in a major league clubhouse, there's chefs. Like you come in for BP, it's, hey, I'll take a double cheeseburger, this, that. You know, they'll make you whatever you want. Like there's – you have every advantage. Like you don't go out to the field to, like, God, geez, I'm starving. I wish I would have had a snack or had something. Like, you know, in minor leagues, when I was playing, you know, there were times where there's – if you weren't one of the first guys back in there, everything got picked over and there wasn't a lot of food and there wasn't – you know, ways to keep yourself, you know, the right nutrition and the right food. And now that, you know, it's, it's not like that any longer, you know, they've finally realized, Hey, we're investing millions of dollars in these kids. We should probably fuel them with the right kinds of foods, plenty of it. And uh, I'm glad they've come to that realization uh, too late for me, but um, better for the, the next group coming. Um, so it's, like I said, you just become almost nocturnal. Um, and your family and your loved ones kind of adjust to that schedule too. You know, you're, they're not going to talk to you until after 11 o'clock at night on a normal night, you know, when you call the check-in and what's going on at home and, 
um, you know, when you travel, it's a lot of bus rides and it's, you know, like I said, you get on that bus at midnight and it's a six hour bus ride. You're rolling into the next town at six in the morning versus if you're a major leaguer, you get on a chartered plane with a full meal service, anything you want to drink, any movies are available to you. You know, you're in a first class seat. Every seat is a first class seat. And so you're well rested when you, you know, you still have that same travel, but you're, you know, you're not crammed on a bus, you know, smelling, you know, got 30 other guys. That's terrible for any amount of time. You can imagine what that's like for six hours. Good God. Um, and, you know, so this, that kind of stuff, you know, little stuff like that, that you, you know, don't necessarily think about as being a big advantage, but actually is. How is the interaction between fans different at the minor leagues and the major leagues? Um, you know what? I was, uh, same. I was an interactor with fans. I enjoyed it. Um, I like to, you know, I could take it and I could give it back. You know, I, I, I like getting in conversations one way or the other with fans. It didn't bother me. I never took any of it personal. I know that they were just trying to elicit a response to get me to engage them. And they had the right audience because that's exactly what I wanted to do. So it was perfect. Um, I remember we were in Philadelphia and a seven-year-old kid is about, I'm guessing he said, I have an eight-year-old kid. And so I, it's about that age. And I remember him calling down and saying, Hey, throw me a ball. No, please. No, nothing. I looked at him like I was, and I just turned it through the ball to the bucket. And then he dropped an F bomb on me and he was standing next to his dad. And I remember thinking, so I looked, turned back and I looked at him. I go, sir, proud moment for you, sir. Your seven-year-old just told me to go F myself. That's awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> well done. And then like three or four guys came over to him. He's like, dude, we're in Philadelphia. You cannot interact with these people. You're going to get batteries. <laughs> you have to just go to death. Don't turn to them. Don't talk to them. Don't nothing. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, well, that's little kid just told me that. He's like, yeah, it'll get worse. Trust me. So that was like the last time I, uh, that's awesome. I, I really engaged in any of the fans. But back at um, in Chicago, you know, you used to stand or the bullpen. You were just right. It was like the fans were in row two and you were in row one. They could just tap you on the shoulder and, you know, it was, they were literally right there. And so, you know, you come out to Wrigley, uh, you know, the games are at 11. So you come out to stretch, it's like nine in the morning and there's 4,000 people there. They're all hammered. And you just come out and they're all, like the second your head pops up out of the dugout, they're on you. They know things about you that they shouldn't. Now this is really before any of the social media stuff. So they were, I don't know how they got the information I got, but it was clever. And I just used to look and I go, does anyone here work? Like, how are all these people here <laughs> on a Tuesday? And you're drunk. It's 10 in the morning. But um, <laughs> I, I think there was a tirade from a former Cubs manager that basically asked the same questions, uh, actually. It's, it's, right. Honest to God, unless you've seen it with your own eyes, it's something to behold. It's, uh, <laughs> it was one of the best venues I ever played in. Just the, and the Cubs sucked back then too. They weren't very good either at the time. And, you know, I'll say this for both those fan bases. Like we lost a hundred and something games. There was 34, 35,000 every night in Milwaukee. Like they, we were yep. supported regardless. It was, you know, we would go on the road and we'd go to Pittsburgh and there'd be 8,000 people. We'd go to Cincinnati, there'd be 10,000. And they were better than we were. And I would think to myself, Oh my gosh, we are so lucky to, you know, play in a city where, they're just they're just there to support the team. If it's good, awesome. That's great. If it's not, they're still going to support you. They're still going to be behind you. Um, like we, they packed that place, and you know the product on the field. You know you could debate whether they should or they shouldn't, and they sure did. And it was God. It was so cool to to witness that and to be, you know, 
you know, I didn't have a ton of major league time, but I got to play for, you know, I didn't know anything about Milwaukee. I didn't know anything about, I'd never been to that state prior to getting there. And I ended up leaving there thinking, God, this is what a great place to, you know, if you, if you had only one opportunity, only one opportunity to do it, that would have been, that's a great spot to, to get to do it. Like you, you get to do it all and you're treated like gold, really. I mean, it was awesome. It, that's great to hear. And I'm sure the, the fans who listen to our podcast are going to really appreciate those comments, Jason. That's, that's awesome. And, and Jason, last question before we transition to our, our Rapid 9 segment with you. So tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now and uh, are you still involved with baseball at all? I am. I am a, uh, a scout with the L.A. Angels. Um, I've been scouting for 12 years. Um, I started with Tampa Bay as an area scout out here in Arizona uh, for six years. And then um, I got uh, – kind of uh, an opportunity to do a, you know, a cross-checking job with the Angels. So I've been doing that for uh, the last six years. So I'm a Southwest cross-checker. I have essentially boils down to about half the country, uh, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona, Colorado, Utah, Vegas. Uh, I'm probably forgetting one. Um, But yeah, so I kind of patrol those areas and I'm still involved in the game. And I've been, uh, I've been blessed. You know, I've been in professional baseball since I'm 18 I'm 44 now, so um, I've carved out a nice, you know, career in life that, like you said, you can only dream of, like when you're a little kid. So I've got certainly nothing to complain about. I've been nothing but blessed, and I'm grateful for every opportunity I've had along the way. That's for sure. Jason, are you ready for a Rapid 9 segment? I'm as ready as I'm going to be, so let's do it. All right. <laughs> that sounds good. We'll, uh, we'll lead off here with the first inning, of course. Uh, question number one, Jason, who was your favorite baseball player growing up? Wade Boggs was my favorite baseball player. He was a diehard Red Sox fan. The man ate chicken with every meal, and he absolutely raked. Loved him. Wait, a lot of beer too, I believe. Yeah, is is the rumor true with the the? Well, he drank two cases of beer from Boston to California, never yeah. peed once. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, it is to me. I mean, this man's <laughs> this man's a and rarefied air as far as I'm concerned. So it's a hundred percent true. It has my stamp of approval. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> um, question number two, I mean, then. Um, how long although, was real quick though? Yeah. Okay. Honestly though, I, uh, if I could just go back a little bit, sure. I've had to pee three times since we've been doing this for 45 minutes. So <laughs> I don't know how likely that is that he made it all the way across. You know, the more I think about it, but. All right, go ahead. Sorry, <laughs> we, we heard that from our anonymous. We heard that from our anonymous source, Tom Carter. So you just never know how true that is. But anyway, Scotty, go ahead. <laughs> All righty. Um, inning number two. Then, um, how long was uh, the longest minor league bus trip of your career? And if you have any, um, if you want to ad lib on any of those experiences, seventeen hours from Harrisburg, uh, from uh, somewhere in Maryland, all the way to Albany, Georgia, and I haven't been right since. Wow. And that was 30 something years ago. And I, it, it's it ruined me. Like I've never been the same person ever. My spine's crooked. Uh, you know, a couple of my teeth might've fallen out on that journey. So it was, it was just a bad, like, put it this way, they, they, they tap out a bus driver after 10 hours. Some new dude comes on. You stay, oh, you got to keep going. But they bring in a stunt driver for the rest of the trip. It's that long. So How easy- might, lead to prostate, might, might lead to prostate issues as well. You never know. I'm hoping. <laughs> All right, this, this is uh, question 2B then. How easy is it for you to fall asleep on a bus? Because on a bus, on a plane, I cannot do it no matter what. I've had 14-hour flights. I didn't sleep a wink. How easy is it for Never you? Never slept on them, man. 
I'm an insomniac, and so sleep is uh, a difficult for me to come by just naturally. So I certainly wasn't sleeping much on those buses unless I just happened to pass out from fatigue just where your body just shuts down and just you have to fall asleep. But I, I was a relatively – I saw, you know, that 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. witching hour where everyone on the bus is asleep except for me. I had that experience regularly. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Yeah. All right, third but thing. Um, we talked about how little boys dream. A lot of them dream about, including all of us, of becoming a major league uh, baseball player at some point. Jason Drosser got to live that dream. They also dream of having their face on a baseball card one day. Here's the third inning question. How many Jason Drosser baseball cards do you own, and do you have a favorite? Wow. Uh, I own them all. Um Every one that they've ever made of me, I think I have somewhere around. My parents collected them. I, I did, too. I thought it was awesome. I was a huge baseball card collector as a kid. And so I was, you know, already into that sort of thing. Um, my favorite one is when I'm with the Texas Rangers because it's as I'm pitching and as I land and my stomach is so big and I am so fat, it is so embarrassing. It's far and away my favorite one. It's hideous. <laughs> <laughs> like the term morbidly obese would not do that picture justice. It is, uh, it, it is thoroughly embarrassing. Every time I get one in the mail and I show my kids, I say, look, all that sugar eating, this is what it does to you. Do you, do you still get a lot of, do you, do you get a lot of fan mail, Jason, from, uh, from people wanting an autograph or sending a card to you? I'm just going to answer that question by saying there are a lot of lonely people out there that are, you know, just if yes, the, the short answer is yes. I get them. Uh, you know, they come and they come and uh, I would say I probably get every week or two. I get at least one, but maybe two, three, four months. Some months are more than others. You know, it's I probably get more than I should. How about that? That's cool. That's <laughs> awesome. Interesting. Um, so here's, all right. Yeah, fourth inning here, uh, Jason. What is your favorite memory as a Milwaukee Brewer? Mm. Oh, man. Uh, oddly enough, I've never really even thought about that. Um, probably coming back to pitch in Arizona, where I'm from, and I learned a very valuable lesson. Um, you know, they have a traveling secretary that you go everywhere with, and unbeknownst to me, you're supposed to tip this gentleman. You know, so when you get to your city and you leave all those tickets – you know, they have good seats. I never did that. And, you know, I'll tell you this, like there's all kinds of people you have to tip when you get to the big leagues from all different. And there's not like a brochure that somebody hands you and says, all right, this is what you need to do. Like you just have to kind of figure it out. And I didn't figure that part out. So when we got to Arizona and I remember I was listening for the cheer, you know, I was a visiting player. There's going to be no cheer for me, but I knew I had like a hundred and something people at all those games. And so I got, I get on the mound and I listen and I hear this, faint echo from like the third deck as far away up in the corner as you could possibly get and that's where all of my people were and so I, I was like you know kind of bummed out about that and then like uh, I remember Glenn Rush is like hey have you been greasing them and I'm like greasing them what are, you, what are you talking about he's like yeah man you gotta give them some cheese man and then they get you the good seats and I'm like no I, I didn't he goes yeah that's where they're up there in the nosebleeds man so but I, I pitched well in, uh, in Arizona, you know, in front of all my old baseball coaches, kids from high school, all my friends, family. And I, uh, I had a little bit of success and I got to pitch in front of them. And I thought that was pretty cool. But 
Um, my most memorable moment, I know this is going on and on, but this is actually pretty funny. And I've never seen it since. Um, it was my second year. We were playing the Boston Red Sox, who is my favorite team and still is. Um, and the bases were loaded. Kevin Millar was up. And I went into the stretch. And my jock strap broke. And my cup started sliding down my leg and stuck to my knee <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. And so I just stepped off the rubber and jogged off the field in the middle of the game, jogged <laughs> off the field, went down into the runway, took my pants off, threw the cup on the ground, jogged back out, hung a slider and gave up a grand slam on the next pitch. That is my most memorable. <laughs> and the only that's... time I was ever on sports center. Oh, we incredible. Yeah, like my we, buddies we, always we, like we, we've oh, heard oh. we've heard about like rain delays uh, before from other guests. Uh, that is definitely probably the, the the top story that we've heard from any of our guests so far on the show. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, oh like yeah, as far all as my in-game experiences goes, that's a, that's a unique one. Literally every member of my immediate family or anybody whose last name was DeRocher or my or Marcot, which is my mother's maiden name, was watching that game, and so. Uh, yeah, so and my most embarrassing moment in life came in front of everyone. So how lucky was I? Fantastic. <laughs> that, that <was> great. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, um, let's see. Inning number five here. Um, uh, who was your most influential minor league teammate? And since we already kind of talked about Curtis Laskanik, um, we'll, we'll say not him, but uh, who is your next most? <laughs> oh, okay, minor league teammate influential yeah that's a good question i uh um probably a guy named russell handy who lives in uh, lives in san diego now he was a really good buddy of mine um i was ended up being roommates with him a lot he was like one of the only guys that had a car so he literally drove us everywhere um he was a fun guy to hang out with he was 6'6 260 just chiseled so you kind of had carte blanche anywhere you went you know you weren't going to get messed with uh, people were afraid of him on on site, so you had a pretty, you know, you were going to have a safe night out when you were with him. Um, and he was just a, you know, the type of guy that would just give you the shirt off of his back. And so, you know, it wasn't until later in life um, when I became a functioning adult that I realized how lucky I was to have somebody like that in my life at that time. Um, you know, at the time I totally took it all for granted, um, but I've got to reconnect with him later in life, and I made sure he knew how important all that stuff was, and. Um, yeah, so it would probably be him. And on the major league side, um, as far as just baseball stuff and getting through it, Glendon Rush was a really good um, source of knowledge. He always went out of his way, you know, when you were like with stuff with like tipping the, you know, who to tip, what to do, where to go, where not to be. Um, you know, he was a you know a married guy, a family man, so he's a good guy to you know to be around to go out with, and where you weren't going to get yourself in a bunch of trouble. Um, you know, a guy that did it the right way. So he was a really good example um, as well. And he was, he was great to every young player that came up. It was not just unique to me. I saw him go out of his way with, I mean, uh, literally everybody. So he was a really good person. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Condor, sixth inning. Jason, who was uh, the most famous major league player that you were able to face, uh, either at the major league level or some, someone way along your way in the, in the minors? I faced uh, Sosa in his heyday when he was hitting 65 jacks. I faced Pujols. Um, I faced all the all the you know all the guys in the National League: Chipper, Sheffield. Um, hard to hard to pick one. I mean, I faced quite a few of them. Awesome. 
and I'm sure they're, I'm sure they think about it all the time. The time they face Jason DeRocher, I'm sure they're going up <laughs> late at night, and contemplating the at bat pitch by pitch. Even to this day, I mean, who could blame them, right? I mean, what an exciting time for them. They're thinking, how did I strike out? Exactly. <laughs> Seventh here, which current brewer is your favorite to root for, and, and do you still watch the team in Milwaukee? Uh, you know, I watched the playoff run. Uh, I don't watch much baseball. Um, I'm, I'm at a game every day, you know, from a scouting perspective. And so I've, I get more than my fair share. So, uh, and my kids don't like baseball. So uh, it's never, it's rarely if ever on the TV. Um, but my favorite, do I have a favorite brewer? Um, oh yeah. Zach Davies is my favorite because he pitched on my scout team when I was a scout for the Rays. He was, and he was fantastic. Uh, he just weighed about 110 pounds. You know, that was the big thing with him when he was in high school. And I see he's up to about 130 now. So he's you know, really <laughs> piled on the weight. Um, I, I was going to say, but, he might be up to 115 or so now, but yeah. 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 He's, he's still awake, but man, he could really pitch. You could see it when he was in high school. It was, you know, the, kudos to the scout that signed him because, you know, it's, it's hard to get, you know, to see a skinny guy like that and think he's going to hold up and be able to log a bunch of innings and every fifth day. That's, they did a really good job, and that kid had some kind of makeup and could really, really pitch. I'm happy for how things have gone for him. He was wonderful uh, to be around those couple of years I had him. and um, uh, Yeah, so he'd be my favorite one. All right. Uh, inning number eight here. Um, okay, what is your favorite ballpark food? And I'm actually going to uh, expand on this a little bit. Um, you're Obviously, you're at a ballpark just about every day, but um, – what is your favorite ballpark food? And then um, anything like um, like your regular go-to and then like if there's something specific at like another, like just at one stadium that you just have to get when you're there. Uh, so it's going to be kettle corn. I like that everywhere. And the best thing nice. I've ever get is right here in Arizona, it's a caramel apple and they cut it up into the slices for you. And you, oh my God, it's like, it's like heaven on a, you know, it's like the best $74 caramel apple you'll ever have in your life. It, it's <laughs> fantastic. So and I've not seen that anywhere else that I've been. So that would be my favorite. Nice. Awesome. All right. We get to our final ninth inning here, uh, Jason. And pretty much as we're on the cusp of the 2019 start of the Major League Baseball season, uh, do you have any predictions on how you think the Milwaukee Brewers will – this year well, I think they're going to be really good I, I mean I like what they did last year they've added some pieces you know lost some pieces but they have a good mix of young old uh, veteran guys uh, you know the division they play in is really tough but you know, that is what it is but I fully expect them to make some noise again and um, you know be in the thick of it again they've got a really solid team there's no getting around it they're they're good they're going to be good well, our listeners love hearing that, and uh, I'm sure they've enjoyed, enjoyed your entire interview with us. Thank you so much for taking the time this evening to tell us all your stories and your journeys through the minor leagues and into the major leagues um, as a Milwaukee Brewer back in 2002 and 2003. Jason, uh, we, we really appreciate all the time that you spent uh, giving us your insights, so thanks once again. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime, guys. Yeah, we really appreciate it, Jason. Really, really enjoyed it. All right, thank you. All right, man. Take care, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Jason. Yep, bye. Bye. Thank you. 
All right, Brewer fans, let's look forward to a, a great 2019 season. And, uh, again, go Brewers and stay classy, Milwaukee. And also, just to throw out really quick, uh, please uh, give us a follow on Twitter. We've really appreciated the, the large amounts of the followers who've joined us in the last week on Twitter. It's Brew Crew Review Podcast uh, with an S at gmail.com if you want to send us your questions or Brew Crew Review 1 on Twitter. We appreciate all the followers.